Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. In this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Carola Vestermeyer, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Amsterdam. Carola has recently published an article on the increasing platformization of financial transactions. By platformization, she means the concentration of payments and financial transactions in general on internet-based or mobile app platforms run by the big tech firms, such as Google, Apple, Facebook, or if you're in China, Alibaba and Tencent. Increasingly, these large tech companies are collecting our payments data and making use of it. So Carola is going to talk on the podcast about why this is happening, what as consumers we need to think about this development, and how regulators and governments are coping with the challenging competition dynamics between the new arrivals in payments, the tech firms, and the existing players, largely banks and card companies. Carola, thank you very much for joining the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners where you work and what you do? Yeah, uh, thank you, Paul, for for having me on the podcast. Um, I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Department of Political Science at the University of Amsterdam. And what I do, yeah, I'm I'm part of a project group that is called Follow. Um, that's short for following the money from transaction to trial. So um, I'm here based within a team that is actually interested in how um, financial transactions are used within the security realm. So how suspicious transactions are reported by banks or other financial actors to security authorities and then might end up in court as evidence for, let's say, uh, terrorism financing. So we're actually coming from uh, the perspective of uh, security institutions and and we're interested in how um, money and financial transactions are used for these purposes. So this is a project that's uh, supported by the um, European Research Council and it's at the Amsterdam Institute for Social Science Research. So yeah, so that's where I am. Thank you very much for explaining that. You've recently published what I found a very interesting paper on the growing role of platforms in finance and financial technology. And you uh, argue that there are a number of initiatives, uh, particularly in Europe, that that kind of merge the digital uh, economy and the financial economy by putting things on platforms. Could you explain why you think this trend is so important? It's important for, for different reasons, let's put it like this. So different things play into this uh, broader development. So first of all, we could say it's important from the user's perspective to know or to be aware of who handles uh, our financial information. So because our financial uh, records they tell actually a lot about ourselves, about our social networks, about our wider networks, about what we're interested in. And all these kinds of things are actually uh, stored within the information that we have um, um, with on, uh, within our financial records. You're and, talking about uh, the transactional data that we all generate when we're using our, absolutely. our bank so, cards, our online payments, right. these kinds of things. All these kinds of things. So, um, yeah, within the transactional uh, records, you know, you have a timestamp, you of, often have a location, um, so you can pretty well uh, kind of make visible or kind of uh, uh, show where people move, what, what people are interested in, how much, you know, their, their, their ability to spend and all these kinds of things. But uh, more broadly within, let's say, your, your bank statement, you know, you can also 
see your salary. So you see who is employed by whom. Uh, maybe you see membership fees and so on. So all these kinds of data uh, that are within our financial records. And what is important about these information is, you know, that they indicate a very strong relationship. So if you think about, you know, uh, being on Facebook or so on, then you may, uh, you know, uh, click like uh, or about uh, specific information or you may like a specific product. But if you actually buy this product, that indicates uh, a more stronger relationship than just, you know, saying, I like this. So uh, financial records uh, really have a specific quality to the information um, that we find within them. Okay. Now, uh, what I uh, an example you gave in your article was that when we, you know, when when all of us leave our house, if we're, you know, now we're able to leave our houses again, um, we tend to grab we tend to grab our phones and probably a, a wallet with a, a bank card in it. Um, now, why do we continue to use those uh, bank cards, even though you know increasingly we can conduct all our payments using the same mobile phone yeah. as we use for social media, yeah. for for calls, for internet access, and so on. Absolutely. I was, uh, yeah, there was a striking thing when I left my house in, in Amsterdam. I always take my smartphone with me, but I also need my, my credit card uh, to, you know, to do everyday payments and so on. Um, and this is uh, uh, rooted in the underlying technologies. Of course, we can um, use increasingly things like Apple Pay and uh, that are embedded within our smartphones, but we don't know if all shops uh, accept that. But uh, within Europe, what you know is accepted are most bank uh, debit cards or credit cards or whatever model is preferred in your country. So um, that was kind of striking to me. And, and I was interested in how, why that is actually, right? That so many services are embedded within the smartphone, except payment services uh, in many cases. So, and this um, is connected to what you said in the beginning, to the, um, to the, increasing dominance of platforms, but also to the uh, ongoing dominance of financial infrastructures. So um, I use these two terms that are often used interchangeably, so platforms and infrastructures, uh, to understand uh, the shift within banking more generally. So uh, financial infrastructures have been there for quite a long time, and to access these infrastructures, um, to, to make a, a payment from, from one account to another. Um, yeah, banks, it's most, uh, most, uh, mostly banks who access financial infrastructures, they need to uh, meet regulatory demands. So um, there is a high barrier of uh, regulation that is connected to the access of and the use of financial infrastructures. And um, tech companies uh, or tech-driven companies, they don't want to be banks themselves. So they don't want to meet all these uh, regulatory demands. Uh, but what they want to do is embed payments within their platforms. So uh, what we increasingly have is that technology-driven companies seek to build their uh, business models on top of financial infrastructures, meaning they want to access, they want to have access to financial infrastructures, but they don't want to be banks. So there are different models of how they can gain this kind of access. So it's a cooperative model, but also sort of, uh, uh, let's put it, um, uh, penetration uh, in a way, or also uh, ways of circumventing the established financial infrastructures altogether. 
So there are different models of how platforms build on top of financial infrastructures. Carol, let me stop again, you there for a second because yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I'd like to ask you. I'd like to ask you about those models uh, in detail mm-hmm. in, in, in due course. But could we take a step back and talk about the regulatory changes in Europe that have allowed tech firms access to banking data that, in the form of the payment services directives in Europe, the Open Banking Initiative in the UK? What was the origin of these? Uh, you know, their political initiatives. Why did the uh, governments and the regulatory authorities in Europe decide to do this? Yeah, so um, the initial idea uh, behind PSD2, or what is called open banking within the UK, was uh, a liberation of the financial market. So uh, banks should be pushed into, you know, allowing consumers to to decide what they want to do with their financial data or how um, how they want to use financial services. So uh, it was a push towards market liberation. But what I argue is this: that this push is um, inherently a push towards uh, platformization, um, because PSD2 and uh, open banking they demand banks to grant access to their consumers or to their customers' accounts. Of course, only if their cost, uh, their their, their uh, customers consent to it. Uh, but they demand banks to allow access to these uh, accounts so that, you know, you as a consumer, you might want to decide that if you uh, use a big platform, you may want to uh, execute a payment uh, for for something that you purchased online through the platform without leaving the platform and go to your banking app and, and initiate the payment, but that you can actually do this online. Yeah, we just saw an example in, 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 sorry to interrupt you, we just saw an example of that this week with, uh, I think Facebook has announced that in Brazil, if you use WhatsApp in Brazil, uh, you can pay uh, another Brazilian WhatsApp user directly, you know, using the app rather than logging out. And uh, so this is a kind of constant theme that co- the tech companies are expanding these offerings, you know, worldwide yeah, in different countries. So this yeah. is, these kind of models um, that users may just, you know, directly initiate a payment within a platform this is what regulators also wanted to promote um, within Europe, to promote, uh, I quote, innovative mobile and internet payment services. So, you know, they wanted to to digitalize the financial landscape in Europe. Um, okay, so, so yeah. they, well, they wanted to open up banking. Uh, they wanted to give a competitive push. They wanted to make things more, you know, easier for consumers, probably more competitive, cheaper, ideally, and, uh, and more informative. Yeah, absolutely. And what they were hoping, in a way, or what you know, some regulators say is that they kind of hope for banks to develop platforms themselves, and uh, you know, within these platforms, then uh, embed new kinds of services and so on. So they were actually hoping to uh, to keep banks in the role of trustees uh, for their consumer data. Um, so yeah, this is what was kind. Of Kind of behind the whole uh, uh, the whole directive. Last year, I interviewed Dave Birch, who's a, an expert on digital payments, on digital money, and he said that, in his opinion, forcing banks to provide open interfaces to tech firms is half a good idea, because the the missing half is reciprocity, because tech firms don't have to give anything back to the banks. I wonder what you thought of that uh, comment. Yeah, absolutely, it's definitely true. I know it gets a bit tacky. Um, so what is central to the new directive, uh, PSD2 and open banking, are so-called APIs. So these are 
application programming interfaces. And so APIs are a means of exchange uh, between two parties. So these are, you know, machine to machine interaction. APIs are not a neutral way of, uh, of uh, interaction, but actually, you know, the terms and conditions are determined by the platform holder. So if and these by the are platform banks, holder, Carola, sorry to interrupt yeah. you, you're talking about things like Apple Pay, Google Pay. Uh, these are the platforms you're talking about. Yeah, if they establish their platforms, yes, then, you know, they have uh, the, the APIs. And, you know, if, if, if they communicate with their environment, they determine the APIs. So, and obviously, it's what, what you just said, the people who use the, the APIs of banks, they want to gain the information, the information about uh, financial transactions, but they have little to give back, right? So, um, so far, banks have no bigger plan or what I'm aware of, of how they really use this kind of interaction in a reciprocal way. So, so is it then correct to say that the the uh, payment services directives, the open banking initiative, uh, even though they were supposed to work on a, a reciprocal basis, an exchange basis, they've created an, an uneven playing field in favor of the tech companies? Well, so far, if the tech companies um, succeed in convincing customers to um, use their platforms to access their um, financial services. So if users decide, okay, let's say uh, I will use Apple's, Facebook, whoever's platform um, to to access my uh, financial information, then yes, then banks are actually reduced to their infrastructural substrate. So they're they're only uh, uh, the ones who hold the, the bank accounts, who do the regulatory work, but actually users will experience their finances through the apps of Facebook, Apple, and so on. So in, the, in this case, if this is, uh, is what uh, materializes within the next years, then there is no reciprocal kind of interaction between banks and tech companies. And we're creating, but, we're giving even more power to what are already very powerful companies. Absolutely. So if big tech companies succeed in establishing platforms through which users access their financial services, then they definitely um, have access to the, to the financial uh, information of users and so on. So then, you know, uh, users will eventually uh, only access their finances through the big platform. So that brings me to a question about money and, and data. I guess mm -hmm. most, of us have a, most of us still have a ment mental model of money as something that, uh, you know, we visualize in the form of notes and, and coins, but that's probably rather inaccurate since most money just exists as a, uh, entries on digital ledgers, in other words, as a form of data. And in your article, you say that the value of money and data depends on the technological underpinnings that determine how they circulate. So does that mean that money and data in the, in the, in the future or even today are kind of interchangeable and just depends on how they, you know, how they move around? What I want to highlight is the fact that money itself is data. So that there's a huge potentiality that you know the information that are stored within our transactions are used for different kinds of purposes. So as you said, you know we know cash, and and you know with cash you only have the value of the money itself, and you don't know uh, who had it before or where it comes from and so on. But with all kinds of electronic forms of cash, you can actually you know make uh, relations. You can kind of yeah, draw a network of your contacts and so on. So 
Because obviously a transaction has, you know, a sender, a receiver, a timestamp, and so on. So it's a lot, lots of information that is within this transaction itself. And uh, anthropologists or people who've also, you know, looked at the, the fintech sphere have said, okay, increasingly we see that the value of the exchange decreases while the information that the exchange um, generates is actually increasing. So the fact that you know we book a hotel room at a specific place, a specific time, you know, through a specific platform and so on. And also what's important is you know the technological aspect that you said. Um, is so that just so I just so I understand what you're saying. You're saying that the fact that you know you maybe pay a hundred euros for that online reservation, mm-hmm. the, the hundred the hundred euro part of that uh, transaction is becoming less important and the actual information contained in you know what you're doing how you're doing it where you're doing it yeah. when and so on that's becoming much more important absolutely so especially for for companies who build on data driven business models these kinds of information are you know way more interesting than the value of the purchase for banks you know obviously it's it's always been the case that banks strive on money and less on on the data that is implied within financial transactions so um, they, you know, they still value the amount of money that's been moved around. However, you know, banks are also kind of waking up to the fact that they sit on a rich, um, yeah, rich sources of data and, and data about their consumers, uh, their customers, sorry, and, and, you know, how they can, and they think about how they can make use of this, uh, uh, you know, these kinds of data that they have actually collected over the past years. Okay, thank you for explaining that. I'd like to ask you then about to talk about some of the models you describe uh, of the way that the tech companies are are trying to um, build their platforms, how they're trying to build on the existing infrastructure. Where do you see the main points of competition or conflict between the, 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 the new arrivals, the tech firms, and the and the existing infrastructure? Yeah. Okay, so we have different kinds of models in a way that, you know, uh, um, non-financial companies like Apple have already also teamed up with financial companies. Like we have Apple Card, which is a cooperation between uh, Goldman Sachs and and Apple, you know, and there's kind of uh, uh, a clear structure that it's technology first, that Apple provides uh, the app and all the um, uh, nice features for the user while uh, Goldman Sachs provides uh, the access to the financial uh, infrastructure, so, so the means to actually move money around. Um, so this is one model of kind of cooperation. And then we have a, a second model where actually the need to access financial infrastructures is turned into a business model it, uh, itself. So uh, there's an example, uh, and this is the German fintech startup um, Solaris Bank, which has a very interesting claim. So they sell you know, you can build your own banking product with our APIs accessing uh, banking as a service platform. Um, so here we have a tech startup that says, okay, we provide you, non-financial company, with the access to financial infrastructures. We do the regulatory stuff. We, we do the, uh, the means uh, and all the stuff that, you know, banks provide. But you, as a non-financial company, can just build your applications on top of us and perform as a bank and, and provide uh, financial services yourself. The third model, which is probably the best known one, 
um, which is uh, presented by Facebook's Libra, which is kind of saying like, okay, we try to circumvent uh, financial infrastructures altogether. But this has caused, uh, you know, major problems for them as well, because that, that challenges the whole established financial system in a way. That is why regulators uh, quickly said, OK, no, we have to be very careful with this. And so we, we already see um, some indications that, you know, the whole model of LIBOR is kind of uh, accustomed to, let's say, the, the established financial system. But so far, you know, we don't know how it will actually materialize, how uh, Libra will be actually set up, uh, because, um, yeah, it, um, regulators have uh, their demands and, and it's still not clear how, how much they will need to, um, yeah, to build on these kinds of demands. But, you know, essentially, the idea of Libra was, okay, we don't use the, the established financial infrastructures, we just you know, use blockchain to, uh, to perform our interactions and, and build our currency on top. Um, so, and these alternative infrastructures like uh, blockchain, uh, which also, you know, provides the means for Bitcoin and so on, you know, this is a, a, a field where regulators have obviously been, you know, looking at and, and being quite uh, uh, interested on in what's going on there. But with a big player like Facebook uh, seeking to use these kinds of alternative infrastructures they have been very alarmed um, and said, "Okay, this is uh, this is uh, a real threat to the established financial system." Okay, so the majority of the f uh, fintech companies are are, are presumably then uh, trying to operate in some kind of middle ground. So they're not confronting the existing infrastructure too much, but they're also trying to kind of find a way to do things more efficiently mm -hmm. or quickly than than the existing system. Yeah. Yeah, this is an interesting development within the past years is that um, fintechs who've been, you know, who started as a, you know, challenge for the established financial system and you like the big challenges for banks and so on. And, you know, many of these uh, fintechs have actually moved into a direction of cooperation with banks or they've been actually bought by banks and, and incorporated in a way. So, uh, yeah, they're in, uh, in a way, as, exactly as you say, they found a middle ground between, you know, challenging and but also cooperating uh, with the established, um, yeah, banking system or financial system more generally. Let me come back to what you said at the beginning of the podcast, where you talked about your your area of study and the fact that financial transactions <clears throat> in a digital form can now easily be traced. What what does what does this mean for um, the way we use money in future? The, you know, we're we're all if we're all going to be using some form of digital money, digital payments uh, services, we have to accept that someone somewhere is going to have access to that data. So how should we structure the financial system to make sure things are run fairly? Oh, that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> but um, I mean, first of all, I think it's important to, to raise awareness to the fact that, you know, financial information and financial data are being used by different actors within the system. So um, again, banks have taken pride in the fact that, you know, they're kind of the trustee of uh, uh, their um, uh, customers' data. But, um, yeah, they increasingly um, uh, seek to use that information as well for their services. Um, but still, that's open. You know, that's an open question if they will uh, move more into the direction of a really data-driven business. So um, the awareness of uh, uh, consumers to know, you know, that that you know, they're actually producing traces, they're actually producing a lot of data with their financial interactions, 
that's the first step to uh, uh, yeah towards uh, let's say a more conscious usage of the financial system. Um, right, and, and some and some some consumers say at that point, I don't want any part of this. I'm going to stick to using you know my fifty euro note or in you know hundred dollar yeah. bill. They just with us. I'm I'm never going to go into this. I'm just going to carry on using cash. Yeah, so that's that's one you know that that's the opt out model of the financial system, right? So you know you can you, you can choose not to use Facebook, not to use a smartphone, and so on, but you can hardly choose not to use the financial system. So the opt out option is actually cash. So I think that the the discussion about um, you know cash will receive another dimension in that regard. So um, obviously we still have you know cash-based um, um, uh, countries as for example in Germany you you shouldn't really uh, leave your house without cash whereas in Sweden this is a totally different story. Um, so there are huge differences between the countries and also uh, between the users uh, and, and the co- consumers' awareness of uh, the anonymous use of the of financial means. So cash is obviously the, the most anonymous way to yeah to to perform a payment without anybody knowing um about it that you actually you know bought something on a specific date uh, at a specific location um yeah so cash is or should still remain an important option within the system so i think uh yeah i will leave it there <laughs> yeah but do you think the governments uh, and, and regulators are going to you know, constrain the use of cash more in future? Well, that's actually a debate. So I, I, I'm not sure that really regulators are um, aiming for non-cash uh, uh, um, uh, society. So obviously what, what, what we have is that um, security authorities actually, you know, opt or demand kind of cash limits. So I know that in some countries in Europe, there's a you know a cash limit for purchases above a thousand or a thousand five hundred euros. And I think in Germany you can actually buy something up to fifteen thousand euros um, uh, and pay with by you know with cash. So uh, for security reasons, you know the security authorities would be happy to to have a lower uh, cash limit and you know thereby have means to to follow. You know, uh, purchases and and you know to fight money laundering and so on. So there are these concerns on the one hand, uh, but on the other, I think regulators are very aware of the fact that people just like to have at least the option of paying cash, and um, that you know they don't trust. Maybe they don't, they don't even trust their banks um, or, or whoever they they trust their money with um, to to uh, yeah to handle their data sensitively. So that's a big debate that's still uh, carrying on, and there are there are you know pros and cons to use of cash. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So and yeah, we'll see how that goes, and also the European level if if there's a shift. You know, with Corona, there has been said to have a push towards um, uh, non-cash ca- payments, obviously because it's contactless, and you know uh, there's been the, I wouldn't even call it a debate, but there have been some reports that you know cash. Uh, might carry the virus, which have uh, yeah, turned out to be wrong. And but you know people are more aware of uh, of the fact that cash is something that's just you know handed around and that people have been touching it before and so on. Yeah. But I'm I'm not sure if, if this will actually be a driver towards um, uh, an, uh, a non-cash uh, society. 
um, I think it will be, you know, uh, different questions of um, yeah uh, fees and and all these kinds of things. And and most of all, if if shops really accept it. So again, in many countries, you just can't go out and 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 buy a coffee and pay with a credit card because the fees for shops are quite high and and they just want you to pay cash. So these kinds of, the, of things are just, uh, I think, uh, more important to the question if, if we move towards uh, electronic uh, means of payment. Okay. But given that more and more payments are taking place digitally, uh, that, that leaves open the question of how these platforms should be regulated. And in, in your paper, you say that um, you know, the, the claim to follow the money will, incre- will increasingly be replaced by follow the data, and, and therefore platforms will potentially require a similar regulation to financial intermediaries. Now, how, how do you think that might occur? Because uh, banks, as you pointed out, and financial in, uh, infrastructure are very heavily regulated. Uh, data firms typically, you know, very little, if at all. Um, so how are we going to get the level playing field that treats, you know, different actors doing kind of the same thing equally? What we've seen in other services that platforms offer is actually that, you know, they are subject to regulation. So within uh, the sphere of uh, propaganda, for example, um, platforms are uh, obliged to uh, to undertake actions against that. So we actually see that platforms are becoming subject to regulation uh, increasingly because they they are the, the platforms, obviously, but also uh, the, the central means where these kinds of things happen, where radicalization happens, where hate speech happens and so on. So we have first steps into the direction of uh, regulation, uh, regulatory um, uh, forces upon uh, uh, platforms. Um, I think until now, uh, with regard to financial services, you know, due to the fact that they have not been the biggest players within the financial or the payment sphere, um, that has not been the main concern of regulators, but still the, the fact that, for example, um, PayPal has been uh, regulated and needs like, uh, you know, you need to identify yourself uh, with PayPal and you, you need to approve your identity if you want to use uh, the platform. You know, these are first steps into that direction. So if, if platforms are increasingly used for uh, financial transactions and for financial services, I think we will see steps into that direction. Um, however, you know, again, um, it might be the case that banks actually perform or still perform these uh, these uh, services for the platforms because you need to identify yourself if you open a, a bank account. So this this is one regulatory demand. Um, but um, yeah, so it's 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 a bit of in the middle of the whole um, uh, question where on who actually performs uh, the payment and where um, um, yeah, the, the information about the, uh, the transmitter is actually stored. So yeah, this is, this is still open. Okay. And for listeners to keep a, uh, an eye on this you know, quite technical and, and complex area, are, you know, as a final question, what, what particular initiatives or projects would you recommend that people follow closely to see what's going on? I think they're, Quite a few interesting cases. So the entrance of Apple Pay into the European market is actually interesting because, no, on the one hand, we've seen the liberation um, that we've talked about, but on the other hand, European regulators are now 
trying to force Apple to open their platform, so the smartphones, uh, to other competitors uh, to make use of the same technologies that Apple Pay uses. So, Which Apple uh, has historically been very reluctant to do. They've refused to open absolutely. their... Uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So now, you know, the, the regulatory attention turns to the, to the big tech companies and saying like, okay, you also have a monopoly here and um, you also may be forced to, uh, to open that. So this is an interesting case of how the interaction uh, um, between financial services and big tech uh, is actually uh, going on. So, yeah. And at the same time, you know, many European banks are offering uh, Apple Pay as a service. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm eager to see how if this really manifests as a main um, as a main medium of uh, financial transactions. Um, but also, again, in, in, a, in, a, in the sense of that it's, it's a political matter in a way. Yeah. And, presumably, um, yeah. and presumably Facebook's uh, Libra project is, is one that everybody is uh, looking closely at. Yeah. But, you know, um, yeah. So for one, I'm, I'm interested to see um, if this is actually materializing uh, and when. So, yeah, there have been announcements and, and um, adjustments. Uh, but you know, I think everyone's eager to see how it will actually then manifest and how widely it will be used if people uh, will actually um, accept it as a means of payment and how if this really uh, will become a global currency. So you know, the, 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 the question of how to transfer money globally is, is also a super interesting one, um, how these kinds of things will develop within the next years. Um, yeah, so... The, the big the big projects are, are also uh, the big projects in the sense that you know driven by big tech companies are, are also very interesting ones. Carola, thank you very much for taking the time to chat. Yeah, thank you very much for for having me. listening to this new Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. Money is changing fast. It's moving more quickly and cheaply. It's becoming more intelligent and more transparent. At the same time, it's becoming more complex and for many of us, more annoying. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so in two ways. On the right-hand side of our homepage, newmoneyreview.com, you can find a link to our Patreon account, p-a-t-r-e-o-n forward slash newmoneyreview. There you can make a regular payment to support us. Or if you'd like to make a donation in cryptocurrency, you can find our Bitcoin and Ethereum addresses also on the right-hand side of our homepage. Thank you.